Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. Well, by God's plan, we have been studying, if you're visiting with us, the book of Daniel and its prophecies as we head into the world that is around us with all of its challenges and all of the potential moments of anxiety. And one of the key things we've understood out of the book of Daniel in the last few weeks is this idea that the kingdoms of men will not endure, but the kingdom of God will last forever. The kingdoms of men will not endure, but the kingdom of God lasts forever. And this is just a great reminder for us that what we see going on in the world around us, um, we can pray through that. We can consider how we can be involved in that. But we do not need to struggle with the anxiety that everybody else feels with that because we know that God's kingdom will last forever. Well, I'd like to invite you to stand with me for a reading of the portion of the word. And I'm going to read this morning from the book of Revelation. I'm coming back to Daniel in a moment, but I'm in Revelation chapter 20, where it talks about the kingdom of God. And just listen. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its images, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Wow. You may be seated. Take your Bibles and open up with me to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. And the reason I opened with the passage in Revelation is I just wanted to talk to you about this idea of kingdoms for a second. Um, I'm going to kind of unpack just a little bit of theology in and throughout these messages uh, as we kind of unpack the scripture, because I know there's a lot of questions regarding it. So let me just introduce you to the idea of this kingdom. The word kingdom is found throughout the scripture in a lot of different places in a lot of different ways. But here in Daniel chapter, in, in Revelation chapter 20, we heard that there were those sitting on thrones and judging. They were reigning. And we're told later in that passage that we would reign with him as well. This great reminder that a day is coming where Christ sets up a kingdom. Now, let me give you three words, three theological words, and uh, you can forget them after you leave, but at least we've kind of talked about them, okay? Um, When we think of a thousand years, we think of that as a millennium, so we call that a millennial period. There's three ways Christians look at that. One is they would say they would be a premillennialist. They would believe that the Lord's return is occurring prior to the thousand years that we just read about, okay? We, we recognize that, there is a lit, that it appears that there is a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. We would say that 
Christ returns, and then he sets up the kingdom. We reign with him for a thousand years, and on the backside of that, we head into eternity, all right? Now, the other position is a position called amillennialism. Whenever you put a little a prefix on the word, it negates the word. The amillennialist, and if you grew up in a Presbyterian background, that's what you probably believed, doesn't, they, don't, they also believe that the Lord is returning, but they don't believe that the thousand years is a literal thousand years. They believe that God will as he's reigning presently, will, will return, and they interpret those thousand years metaphorically, not literally, right? The other position is a position called postmillennialism, which means the Christians, as we spread the gospel throughout the world, make the, we essentially the world grows better and better and better until we enter into this thousand-year period, and then the Lord returns post on the backside of the millennium. Okay? Now, here's the thing. You say, Phil, I'm totally confused. I don't even know what I am, right? Okay, here's the point. Amillennialist, postmillennialist, premillennialist. I love the way Chuck, uh, Pastor Chuck Swindoll used to say it. He said, listen, um, I'm a premillennialist, but I know this, that if the Lord comes back at another time, other than the time I'm planning on him coming back, I'm planning on going, okay? <laughs> so here's what I want you to understand. We're about to unpack in Daniel certain kingdoms and even future kingdoms. And when we do that, we remember that these are the kingdoms of men. And we don't lose sight of the fact that it's God's kingdom that will last forever. Okay? So take your Bibles, look with me at Daniel chapter 8. And uh, here we go. Daniel has a vision. And whenever Daniel has a vision, typically there's animals in his vision, right? So this is Daniel's vision, and these are lessons learned through the kingdoms of men. And I'm going to give you four different men this morning. Their kingdoms are mentioned here, and some of their kingdoms are mentioned here well in advance, 200 years in advance of them actually reigning and, and, and running their kingdoms. That's how God can do that. God can have a prophet say things that happen that are going to happen hundreds of years later, and he can say it in advance because God knows what's happening, right? Okay, so here we go. Um, Belshazzar is the king you've already met. He was the king of Babylon. Um, and when we think of Belshazzar, here's what we want to re recognize. God's plans are settled, work for him, not against him, okay? God's plans are settled, work for him, not against him. Now, we already met Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5. He was the Babylonian king, you may remember, after Nebuchadnezzar. He was the Babylonian king who literally held up golden vessels and said, let us worship the gods of gold and silver. And at that moment, a hand wrote on the wall that said his kingdom would be taken from him. Belshazzar doesn't follow the true and living God. He kind of says to God, listen, I want to I tell you that I'm not worshiping you as the true and living God. Now, now what's important to understand is that's how Daniel chapter 8 starts. Even though Belshazzar loses his kingdom back in Daniel chapter 5, in Daniel 8, Daniel is giving you a prophecy, a prophecy that took place in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Now, King Belshazzar reigned for 17 years. So that means he's got 14 years after Daniel hears his prophecy. In fact, just let me pick up the reading there. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. That's the vision that we read last week. And I saw in the vision, when I saw, I was in Susa the Citadel, which is the providence of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Now, several things are happening here. 
Um, the citadel was a place or a fortress where you would have thought you would have been protected. But Daniel suddenly realizes there's all kinds of things in this vision happening that cause him to feel pretty unprotected. Belshazzar, you may remember, was the king. Now, this is interesting because you're about to read about a kingdom that will supplant Belshazzar's kingdom. Okay? The Media Persian kingdom will supplant the Babylonian kingdom. And, and Belshazzar would probably have known that in advance of the Daniel 5 thing right here. Remember when he says, let us worship the gods of gold and silver um, and, and, and not worship the true and living God. He would have known. That's why we make this statement that says this. Um, God's plans are settled. Work for him, not against him. Imagine what might have happened if God was still going to bring the kingdom change, but imagine that Belshazzar had 14 years between potentially knowing from Daniel this vision and actually doing something with his 14 years. And the best he can do is party on the last night. Right? I mean, just think about that for a second. That's an incredibly unproductive life. With all of his power and all of his authority as king, he could have cooperated with God as opposed to oppose God. Now, just let that thought kind of settle in. You and I don't know how much time we have left, but what time we do have left, we want to be able to say, I was working with God, not against him. Now, the scripture goes on to say, um, by the way, that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. In other words, you can plan your way, but God's establishing your steps. Many are the plans in the mind of men, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. In other words, we want to find out what God is doing and get in line with that. We don't want to oppose that. Now, here's your second king, and the second kingdom was the media Persians. Uh, the second king is a king by the name of Cyrus. And, and the lesson we learned from Cyrus is that God uses those he chooses, God doesn't waste his choices, right? He uses those he chooses. Now, in Daniel chapter 8, here's the text. And here it becomes the vision that Daniel has. Verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last, and I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward, and no beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Okay, now, you say, what is that? Well, fortunately, at the end of Daniel, Gabriel, the angel, comes along and interprets this vision, okay? And he interprets it in verse 20 by saying this, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So we know that the Babylonian empire was supplanted now by the Media Persian empire. By the way, you can trace this through history, not just what the Bible says, but you're going to be able to see it in history. Okay? If you go back and study ancient history, you'll see that there was a Babylonian empire followed by the Median Persian empire. And by the way, just look at these, 605 to 539 BC, that's the Babylonian Empire. They're working kind of uh, um, up into Syria and down all, all the way over to uh, Iraq there. This is the Media Persian Empire. It's grown significantly down into a portion of Africa um, over the, to the east as well. And, and, and the, Babylonian, the Media Persian Empire basically came out of what is modern day Iraq. Iran. So if you're thinking of the map, that's kind of where they were. So they swelled over and absorbed the Babylonian Empire. And what we learned from that again is that this idea was that Cyrus was God uses those he chooses. Now, let me just unpack Cyrus for you for a second. Okay. Cyrus is a pagan king. Okay. 
just like Belshazzar was a pagan king. Belshazzar said, hey, uh, let's party on the last night. Let's just get drunk and worship the gods of gold and silver. That's what Belshazzar is doing with his last night. But Cyrus is a king specifically chosen by God. Now, I'm just going to kind of blow your mind away with something the scripture does here. It's one thing, it's one thing, if you prophesy an image or a picture and it hasn't happened yet. It's another thing if you prophesy a man by name and he hasn't been born yet, okay? This is exactly what happens with Cyrus. Cyrus is this media Persian king, but 200 years before he was even born, Isaiah prophesied this, who says of Cyrus, that is the Lord, says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, the gates may not be closed. Now just let this thought settle in. Isaiah is writing around 700, but these events are happening in the media Persian empire around 539 to 331, 200 years later. Okay, just for a moment. Imagine if someone went over and said, hey, I was at Independence Hall, and when I was at Independence Hall, I saw your name in the Declaration of Independence. What is your name doing in the Declaration of Independence? I was reading it, and there it was, your name. Like, what's your name doing in there? That's what happened to Cyrus. Cyrus is a king. He's a pagan king. But all of a sudden, someone reads to him a portion of Isaiah, and he says, wait a minute, how old is this? Oh, this was written 200 years ago. What's my name doing in there? Well, your name's in there, and that God, the God of the Hebrews, said that this is what you better do. And by the way, notice again that text in Isaiah 44, uh, real quickly, let me find it. In Isaiah Um, Look at this text. Notice how it says, I have grasped your hand by me. You will subdue nations and loose the belts of kings to open doors before him. The gates may not be closed. That image was what Cyrus realized he had done, and it dawned on him that, wow, the God of the Hebrews was enabling me to do that. That's so very different than Belshazzar and his pride. Cyrus, who was a prideful man too, Acknowledge that God had done those things through him. And that's why we say God uses those he chooses. And in, in, um, in Daniel chapter 8, he is referred to, that kingdom is referred to as the ram, the ram that goes and charges from the westward, northward, and southward, and no beast could stand before him, and there was none who could rescue him, rescue him from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. That would be Cyrus. Now, in Daniel chapter 8, verse 5, this is what we read. Um, by the way, here's the picture when you read it. I just want you to see the picture first. There's the ram, Media Persia, but there's a goat with one horn that's going to ram the ram, and he's going to knock the ram down and trample on the ram and kill the ram. Okay. So watch how this unpacks. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with his powerful wrath. And the goat, later in verse chapter 8, verse 21, 
we read, the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which the four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise out of his nation and not with his power. Okay, now watch this again. Remember how the, how the uh, Greek side over here, they're going to take over this other empire, which is the media Persian empire. Now, we're 331 BC when this happens. You're another 200 years behind Daniel actually having this vision and prophesying and putting in writing this vision. And yet, Gabriel says, listen, you think this media Persian empire is strong? There's another empire coming 200 years from now, the Greek empire, and it's going to be the Greek king that comes. They're prophesying what Alexander the Great does 200 years before he's born. This is remarkable, people. Just think about this for a second. These things are not written after the fact. They are like histories written before they actually happen. And that's what happens here. The Greek Empire is on the east, and it overtakes the media Persian Empire, which is on the west. And remember in the story, the goat comes from the east to the west and destroys the media Persian Empire. That would be the Greek king, Alexander the Great. And what I learned from Alexander is that even wars and unrest serve God's purposes. Alexander the Great was um, one of the first military uh, governing governments that actually begin to train their soldiers. They just didn't go out randomly. They trained these guys. In fact, um, you may recognize this picture if you've ever studied any history. This is called a phylax. It's a group of soldiers that worked with six-foot-long spears, so they didn't throw their spear. They created an environment when they attacked that you could not get to them because of their spears. And literally, there would be row upon row upon soldiers, you can kind of see them behind, that would literally bring their spears down. So even if you could get through the first set of spears, you had to get through the second set of spears and the third set of spears. It was virtually impossible. And these individuals trained from their youth up. Literally, they were taken as children. And check this out. You thought it was tough to go into the military now and do boot camp. They were taken as children, and they began to train them in the winter months as children. And they literally would say, go out into the field. You're 10 or 11 years old. Go out in the field. Live on your own, in the cold, in the snow. Build your own hut. Live out there because we're training you to become one of our military soldiers. These men were incredibly well-trained. And Alexander approaches and takes over that entire empire from the east to the west um, with tremendous speed and force. And prophesied 200 years earlier, you may remember, is this idea that the goat crossed the ground without even touching the ground. In other words, he came with great speed and great force, and he destroyed the media, destroyed the media Persian Empire. So that reminds me of this. Like, I don't like wars and the unrest we're in. But I recognize that God is at work even in those. Okay? I'm not saying God is causing them, but God uses them. I remember um, I had a friend who served routinely in, um, in war-torn areas, Afghanistan and Bosnia. Um, he would go there, and he would always say to me, Phil, wars open doors. Okay? Wars open doors for the gospel. And by way of reminder... If you're kind of following along on our Facebook page, we're posting up for you those six um, Ukrainian pastors and the work they're doing 
If you've followed anything from a Christian perspective in the news in the last week, you've got to know that there is just wide open doors. Um, people who are unbelievers are coming saying, you have food? Do you have something for me? People who would never pick up or read um, a work, for instance, on anxiety and what the Bible says about it, now are asking for it. Okay. So just ponder this. This is the fact that even in wars and unrest, those things serve God's purposes. And it's really clear, I think, back in Greek time that that's exactly what happened. You may remember that Alexander the Great at age 32 wept because there was no more land to conquer, okay? Um, And he died at 33 or 34, okay? He lived his entire life only conquering land, right? And when he died, his kingdom was divided among four different generals or four different leaders, Now, if you were looking at the text, you noticed back here in the text, let me go back a ways, that as for the horn, verse 22, that horn was broken, the main horn, that's Alexander, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And we know that that actually happened in history, but bear in mind, Daniel's writing 200 years before any of this happens, right? We know that this happens and that these four kings from four various areas begin to rule their areas. It's similar to the same image we saw last week. A leopard with four heads and four wings represented Greece um, very clearly, prophesied a couple hundred years before it actually happens, but it actually happens. And the division of those kingdoms looks like this. So you can kind of still picture everything that's colored there was the, was the Greek empire, but now it's divided among four different individuals. And that's going to bring you to the last guy. The last guy is a guy by the name of Antiochus. And here's the lesson you want to know. God protects when others attack, right? God protects when others attack. Now, Alexander, even in the wars and unrest, they serve God's purposes. Cyrus, God took the Jewish people who were over in Babylon, and he said, listen, pack up your gold and silver and all the things we've kept from you and go back and rebuild the temple. I want you to go back. I want you to rebuild the walls. I want you to rebuild Jerusalem. God uses a pagan king to do that. But there is another pagan king coming who mercilessly attacks the people of Israel. And that's found in this next passage. So here we are at Daniel chapter 8, verse 9. And out of the one of them, those four kingdoms, came a little horn, which grew an exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and towards the glorious land. That's the reference to Israel. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. In other words, whoever this king is, something happens to the temple in Jerusalem. And as a host will be given over it together with a regular burnt offering because of a transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering and the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. In other words, something's going to happen 
under this particular king. This king is a gentleman by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He gave himself the last name, Epiphanes, which literally meant God manifest. In other words, he said, I think I'd like to be God, so he named himself God. The Jews took that term because of the way they were, he was treating them, and they nicknamed him not Epiphanes, but Epimenes, which means you're mad, okay? Um, now, you need to understand something that was happening. Remember when those wars were taking place and Greek, the Greek Empire was taking over? The Greek Empire worked not simply by their force, but behind that force of all those spears, they established things like libraries and culture and all sorts of things because Alexander said, listen, the best way to change the world is to change the people in the world, not just defeat them each time. And so now you have a problem because the Greek empire, that where the circle is over there, is influencing this little box, which is the Jewish people who are in, back in the promised land. And so what's happening is we call that Hellenist Jews, and they integrated Greek culture and pagan practices, and they worshiped false gods. And there were traditional Jews who followed Mosaic law, and guess what? The two just clashed. So along comes Antiochus Epiphanes, who's the king up towards Syria, and he drives down, and his solution is to say, listen, I like the ones who are doing it the Greek way, I don't like the ones who are doing it the Hebrew way, so I'm going to forbid Jewish worship. And he set up Zeus in the temple, and scripture, scripture, um, and Josephus tells us that he actually sacrificed pigs on the altar, okay? Now, just think about that for a second. That's not kosher, if you weren't aware of that, Okay? He says, I'm going to sacrifice in your temple to Zeus. And by the way, if you want to practice any of the things you normally did as Jewish people, I'm going to execute you. If you wish to go through the rite of circumcision for, for your son, I'm going to execute you. If you wish to open up the script, your scripture and read it or teach it, I'm going to execute you. So what Antiochus Epiphanes did was he became one of the one of the most hated individuals who'd ever led up against Israel. And they literally, they saw him as that, right? Now, he reigned only just a few years, 11 years, from 175 B.C. to 164 B.C., but it was horrendous. And the Jewish people stood up against it, not unlike what you're seeing in the news today. Um, a huge army coming down and Ukrainian people in the streets standing up against it. That's exactly what happened here by, the, by an individual by the name of Judas Maccabeus. Now, Judas Maccabeus was a priest, but he was a priest who was willing to fight. His father in front of him had also been a fighter, and when they started, when, when, when Antiochus Epiphanes came down into Jerusalem and started bombarding Jerusalem, he killed, um, Judas Maccabeus' father killed one of his soldiers, and then he grabbed his family and ran to the mountains, and they hid in the mountains and practiced, literally, guerrilla warfare to hold back these individuals who are coming down out of Syria. And he fought in such a way that this little band of soldiers defeated a massive band and pushed them back. And he took back Jerusalem, restored the temple in 165 B.C. And by the way, just a little bit of history here. That moment is why we people today celebrate Hanukkah. Because when they came back into the temple, the legend went like this. They came back into the temple. They could only find one vessel. They cleansed the temple, which, you know, there were pigs had been on the altar and stuff like that. They cleansed the temple. They could only find one vessel of oil. And they lit the menorah, that candlestick, and that candlestick burned for eight days, even though it should have burned out almost immediately. 
until they could find more oil. And that's why Jews today celebrate Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights. Back to this moment. You say, why isn't that in our Bible? Well, because all of this occurs in the 400 years between your Old Testament and your New Testament. But that's not all. That's not all. Antiochus teaches us that God protects when others attack. But there's a little phrase used in Daniel chapter 8 that we can just touch on today. Notice how after all of this takes place, we read, verse 17, so he came near where I stood, this is Gabriel the angel, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face, but he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Wait a minute. You say, I thought you said this was just fulfilled, you know, 2,500 years ago. Now you're telling me it's about the end. Well, a number of years ago, when uh, I was skiing with my, my Kim side of the family out in Steamboat Springs, um, I remember that when I first came to the mountain, um, I was looking at the mountain, I thought, that's a really big mountain. And my brother-in-law said to me, um, Mark said to me, you're not even seeing the mountain. I said, yeah, I can see the mountain. That's a big mountain. He said, no, where you stand down here in the Red X, you only see the first mountain. Okay? You can't see the mountain and the other mountain that's behind that mountain. I said, come on, Mark, I can see the gondola goes up there. It stops right there. And literally the next morning when we rode the gondola up, whoa, there was a whole other mountain. And this is a good image for how sometimes an Old Testament prophecy finds immediate fulfillment in history but can also be used for later fulfillment later. Okay. It's like we see the first mountain, but we don't see the second or third mountain that's coming. Now, let me show you that just real quickly, and then we're going to wrap it up. Okay? Here's a very familiar passage for you in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin, a young maiden, shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, look at verse 16. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. That has an immediate prophetic element to the king that's living there. Even before a boy, a child grows up who's going to be born, uh, you can translate virgin as young maiden, who's going to be born to a young maiden, that has an immediate prophecy fulfillment back in the time of Isaiah, 700 years before Christ was born. But watch this. God takes that same verse, and here's what we read in Matthew chapter 1. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Here it comes. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God not only said, listen, it's fulfilled at the first mountain location with that king, but I'm going to use that same prophecy, and it's going to be fulfilled later in the person of Christ. You say, well, how do you know when that's going to happen? Well, here's how you can be sure and certain, okay? See Isaiah, Old Testament. See Matthew, New Testament. If it's quoted in the New Testament, there's a really good chance, definitive chance, it's not a chance, there's a certainty, a definitive certainty, okay, that it's going to have a second fulfillment, Let's go back to Daniel chapter 8 for just a second. Daniel 8, verse 11. It became great, that is, this king, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of the sanctuary was overthrown. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up, Daniel eleven thirty one. 31, 
the abomination that makes desolate. The Jews begin to call what Antiochus Epiphanes did the abomination of desolations. He had come in, he'd taken their temple, he'd stripped it, he'd defiled it, he'd butchered pigs on the altar as if to say, I'm just shaking my fist at your God and he won't do anything. The abomination of desolations took place under Antiochus Epiphanes. But in Matthew 24, Jesus says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no and never will be. Whoa, just let that settle in. Jesus says it happened back there, but it's going to happen again. Therefore, Antiochus Epiphanes also is a picture or an image of what we would know as the Antichrist to come later. In fact, maybe a better way to think about it is this way. Antiochus Epiphanes is the lower mountain, but that abomination of desolations, such a horrendous act done in Jerusalem, is still going to take place, and that's the next mountain up. Here's the lesson you learn from the kings. God's plans are settled, work for him, not against him. God uses those he chooses. Um, uh, let's see, that's the wrong Alexander slide. Uh, Here it is. Let me find it real quick. Yes, even wars and unrest serve God's purposes. And finally, God protects when others attack. This is the great hope we have, that even though we see these kingdoms of men rise up and go down, that only God's kingdom endures forever. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org or our Facebook page Fellowship Bible Mullica Hill.